Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And if you're a guest with us today, we welcome you, first of all. Uh, but secondly, we are going through the Gospel of John Sunday mornings at 11. And we've been here for a number of weeks, I think. I was looking back in my files and we're 40-some weeks into uh, this series through the Gospel of John. And, and who knows how long it will go, only the Lord does, I guess. But we'll work our way through it little by little. So we find ourselves in John chapter 13 still. And our main text is going to be verses 18 through 36. Uh, we'll not get through all of that, certainly. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But I want you to look at verse 30 of John chapter 13. And we'll get started here. And the Bible says, He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Go back over to chapter 12. I want you to see the words of Jesus in John chapter 12 and verse 35. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. In the previous uh, verses, the first section of John chapter 13, Jesus had just given a, a real life lesson to his disciples. And, and we, we've talked much about this, how Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And we, all of that is set in the context of the fact that Jesus is about to go to the cross in less than 24 hours. From this point, he's going to be giving his life for the sin of the world. And his heart uh, for his disciples, even in the middle of all of that, never wavers. Uh, his heart was to prepare them. His heart was to prepare them for what was coming. And he's teaching them life lessons. And the life lesson was the lesson of humility and service to humbly serve other people, even those who don't deserve it. And I didn't mention this before in, in prior uh, messages regarding the washing of the feet, but I have read uh, that, that that instance of, of, of foot washing was reserved for the lowest of the low of slaves or servants. In fact, not even uh, those were, that was reserved for Gentile slaves. Even a Jewish slave, his master couldn't make him wash a, a guest's feet. That was reserved for the lowest of the low. And so what Jesus was doing was giving an example of what real humility and real service was, uh, serving others and even those who don't deserve it, because the truth was none of these disciples deserved that, deserved anything. They thought they were waiting for somebody to wash their feet. They were waiting for somebody to come and do that for them. They were the Jews. And Jesus takes the towel, the apron, the garment of a servant, and, and, and clothes himself with uh, with a servant's garment and, and washes their feet. And then he says, I've given you an example, that you should do the same to others. In the middle of all of that, Jesus also reveals that not all of them are clean or saved. 
and that he's going to be betrayed by one of them. And in the middle of all of this, of what's going on, Jesus is going to teach him another lesson. And the lesson is what real godly love looks like. And he's going to give him a new commandment to love others as I have loved you. And we'll consider all of those things. But in this section of chapter 13, verses 18 through 36, we're going to see three different things. We're going to see betrayal. We're going to see love. And then thirdly, we're going to see denial. All of those are in this passage here, and it's, uh, it's, almost, like, uh, it's almost like an Oreo cookie. You got the hard layers on the top and the bottom, and you got the sweet stuff in the middle. That's sort of what this outline is going to be like, uh, where we see betrayal, we see love, and then we see denial. And so let's go ahead and read verses 18 through 36, and I'll have a few more introductory thoughts here. Uh, before we get into the verses and start unpacking them. But let's begin in verse 18. I speak not of you all. Uh, I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Now what is Jesus referring to? Well, if you back up just a little bit, you'll find that... Uh, that Jesus is talking about the fact that someone's going to betray him. Verse 11, For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garment and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? And so this is what Jesus is referring to, that one of them is going to betray him. And then he comes down and he says, again in verse 18, I speak not of you all. And he's, he's referring to the fact that Judas is, is in the mix here. And he, says, and he says in verse 19, I'm telling you this before it comes to pass, so that when it actually does come to pass, you'll remember it and you'll believe that I am he. Verse 20, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus spoken or had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And of course, he's referring to John here. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went out immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway uh, glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. 
So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. And again, we'll cover all of this. We won't get through all of it today. But in this passage, maybe you've been able to pick it out as we've read, you're going to see betrayal, you're going to see love, and then you're going to see denial. Now, let me just give you a couple introductory thoughts or statements here before we get into these verses. Um, I'm not a huge fan of popular music, of course. I don't listen to it. Uh, I have certainly in my lifetime. Uh, but one thing is interesting, and one thing is uh, is, is somewhat comical um, when you, if you've ever listened to any kind of, of pop music or country music or whatever, inevitably you're going to hear a story that's being told in the lyrics of a song. And many times the story that you hear goes something like this. I loved her, but she didn't love me, and so now I'm just as sad as can be. And we laugh and we chuckle, because I heard some of you chuckling just now. We laugh and we chuckle at the thought behind that. But if that has ever actually happened to you, where you have demonstrated love for somebody, and that person didn't love you back, you understand the emotional pain that can come with that. It's actually probably one of the, the deepest human emotional hurts that you could probably feel. If that's ever happened to you, and you really understand the betrayal and the hurt that comes from betrayal, you can sort of understand a little bit about what might be being felt in this passage here. I mean, it's one thing to be betrayed by people. But it's another thing, and even worse, when you deliberately, intentionally love somebody, but the person that you love deliberately and intentionally hurts you. That's true not only for romantic-type relationships, but also for the relationships of the best friend sort. If you've ever had a trusted friend, one that you have invested your life into and and this person is close to you, and that friend somehow turns on you or attacks you, it's guaranteed it's going to hurt. If it didn't hurt, you weren't the best of friends. If it didn't hurt, you didn't feel the hum human love. It's surely one of life's most emotionally painful type experiences. And to relate to that kind of emotional pain is to understand, in part, why the Bible tells us here that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. The Bible says in verse 21, when Jesus had thus said he was troubled in spirit 
and testified, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. As he thought on Judas, and as he thought on what Judas would do that night, no doubt Jesus felt some human emotional pain and hurt. And it wasn't just the personal pain of Judas's betrayal, certainly not. But also, we find that here, that, that a love that Jesus had for Judas, even though he would betray him, because Judas is about to leave the light that was given to him. Judas is about to leave the light of the world and to step out into the darkness of eternity without God. What John states in verse 30, when he says that after receiving the sop, he went immediately out and it was night. When John says it was night, friend, listen, there's a heavier meaning to that than just the fact that it was dark outside. For it's always night when a person rejects God's love for them and goes into the darkness of eternity without God. It was especially night when the son of perdition betrayed the the spotless son of God into the hands of evil men, sealing his eternity and his fate. It's always night when a soul rejects God and his love. And what I want to talk to you about this morning, and the title of the message this morning is, from the light into the night. This is Judas, walking from the light into the night. And I want to make some spiritual applications along the way uh, for us here today as well. So open your heart to the Word of God, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you bless the preaching of your Word? And Father, may your Spirit have control. And Father, I pray that you, through your Spirit, through your Word, draw man yourself. And teach us lessons as well, in Jesus' name. As I said, our three main thoughts are betrayal, love, and denial. And I want to consider today this first point and thought of betrayal. And we read verses 18 through 36, but we find this story of betrayal in verses 18 through 30. But let me draw your attention specifically to verse 18. The Bible says, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now notice in here that Jesus says that the scriptures may be fulfilled. And what Jesus is referring to is Psalm 41 and verse 9. So keep your place here and go to Psalm 41. And we'll read verse 9 out of this psalm. Psalm 41 in verse 9, the psalmist says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate with me, He lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus, back in our text, says that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And he makes this very statement. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now let me say this. No treachery is worse than the kind of treachery that comes 
from a family member, a loved one, or a very close friend. There is no treachery that is worse than that. And this phrase here, he's lifted up his heel against me. This is the only place in the New Testament where this is used. But it's a metaphor, and it's one that is one of administering a kick. Now, you know how horses react sometimes. It's never a good idea to walk behind a horse. And if you walk behind a horse and a, a horse fly bites them, that horse may rear up and kick, and he might kick you in the head and send you out into eternity. That's the idea behind lifting up the heel against me. Like a horse who would rear up to kick. It's a metaphor that it was used in, uh, for, for, for wrestling terms. Like you imagine two people wrestling, grappling together, and you imagine a wrestler who would plant his heel like this and trip up and pull over the one that he is wrestling with to pull him to the ground. Jesus says, the one who eats with me has lifted up his heel against me. He's raised his heel to kick or to trip, to do damage. But notice he also says, he that eateth with me in this verse. Interesting thought because, you know, betrayal is bad enough. But to do so after sharing a meal, something intimate, makes it even more heinous. Jesus says the scriptures need to be fulfilled. Jesus had to be betrayed. But let me make this statement to you, friend. Judas did not have to be the one to be the betrayer. And I want you to think about that for a second. Because there's a lot of people who say, in different, quote, Christian religions, who say that Judas's act was foreordained meaning that God was the author of it, meaning that it was, he was predetermined to be the one to betray the Son of God and predetermined that he would spend eternity in hell. I don't believe that's true, friend. And I'll show you why from the Scriptures in a little bit. Now, certainly the scriptural prophecy uh, that, that, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be betrayed. Certainly, that was according to God's foreknowledge. He knew what was coming. However, what we find here is that Jesus continually loved Judas right to the very end, giving him every opportunity to change course. He chose it for himself. If he was predetermined to do that, Jesus would not have given him opportunity to change his mind and change course. Jesus loved Judas to the very end. And we'll consider some of that in the next point. But now I want you to verses 19-25, because in order to understand what's actually going on here, we kind of need to understand the picture that's being given. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am He. And by the way, that phrase, you may believe that I am He, it's in, the, it's in the tense that tells us that you might continue to believe, you might keep on believing. The disciples already believed that Jesus was the Christ. But Jesus says, I'm telling you this now so that when it actually does happen and you see it unfolding, you'd keep on believing, be more established in your belief that I am the Christ. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send, receiveth me. 
And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. They were like, who is he talking about? Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Now again, trying to understand this picture and help us understand this text a little bit more. How many of you are familiar with Leo, Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting called The Last Supper? Most of you have probably seen it. And in that painting, what do you see? Well, you see Jesus in the middle, and then you see all of his disciples on either side of him, all lined up together, seated at this really long table. Right? And to the right, you see John, the, the, the apostle John, right, of Jesus. And then you see all of the disciples all spread out in this really long table. Well, that's not technically historically accurate of how it would have been or how it, it, it happened. Uh, the men would not have been seated all next to each other on the same side of a long table. Rather, what you would have seen was that the men would have been reclining, not sitting. And the table wouldn't have been this long, straight table. The table actually would have been this really low, U-shaped table. Okay, you following this? And so not only were they reclining, and not only was it a U-shaped table, but you also would have seen that they would be leaning on their left elbow, and their feet would be going out from the table, and that would make it possible for them to eat with their right hand. And that was really critical as well. And so they're reclining around a U-shaped table. They're leaning on their left elbow so that they could eat with their right hand. Jesus probably would have been at the bottom of that U-shaped table. And John would have been to his right so that it would have been very easy for him to lean back on Jesus's chest and it would have been very easy for him to whisper in Jesus' ear, who is it? We read that in the text. You remember that in the text? So you can imagine Jesus leaning on his left elbow, and you can imagine John to his right, and it would have been very easy for him to lean against his chest. Okay? So we need to understand that picture. Now, when we read in verse 24, what do we read? Simon Peter, therefore, beckoned to him. He's talking about John that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. So you imagine the U-shaped table. You imagine Jesus at the bottom of the U. You imagine that John is leaning against Jesus' chest. And we can imagine that Peter must have been across the table or this U-shape from John so that he could beckon to John, like, hey, ask him, ask him who it is. They could make eye contact. Now, if you're sitting at this long, straight table, you can't imagine all the disciples looking at each other from there saying, who is it? Who is he speaking of? Right? But in this case, you can easily see how this would be unfolding. 
And so Peter gestures to John, who's leaning against Jesus' chest. Ask him. Ask him who it is. But then I want you to notice verse 26. Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now we could just read over those words and not really grasp or understand what's happening here. Judas was probably right to the left of Jesus. So as he's leaning on his elbow, John's leaning against his chest, Judas probably was right to his left. And I say that because during the Passover meal, the master or the father of the household would offer the guests who were in his house a piece of bread that was dipped in a sauce of fruit. That sauce of fruit represented the promised land. And this, all of these things, elements of the Passover meal, were symbolic in some way. But here's the point. The master who would dip the bread and who would offer it to the guest was showing a sign of special attention. In fact, the guest of honor would be seated to the left of the master. And it's quite possible, and he would be the one that the master would offer the piece of bread to. And it's quite possible that that night, Jesus said to Judas, Judas, I want you to come sit over here by me tonight, because I want to be near you. I want you near me. I want to talk to you. And again, I'm going to mention this again when we consider the next point, the love. All the things that Jesus offered to Judas to give him an opportunity to change his mind. But here's the point that I'm trying to make now. Simply having this seat alone to the left of the master would have been one last gesture of love from Jesus toward Judas to give him special attention. Then after Jesus announced that one of the twelve would betray him, the book of Matthew says that all of the disciples at the same time were saying, Who is it? Who is it? Is it, is it I? But in verse 25, it possibly re- reveals something about Judas's proximity to Jesus. Again, verse 25. Uh, 25. Let's, in fact, let's go, back to, let's go over to Matthew chapter 26 with me, all right? Matthew chapter 26. This is a parallel passage here. And again, all of the disciples were saying, is it I? Is it I? But look at verse 25 of Matthew chapter 26. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Now again, get this picture. They're in this U-shaped table, right? Jesus announces that someone's going to betray. Matthew tells us that all the disciples are saying, Is it I? Is it I? But specifically, verse 25 says that, that Judas said to Jesus, Is it I? Or, and, Ju- and Jesus said to him, Thou hast said. Now it seems that this little conversation that took place between Judas and Jesus 
had to be whispered. It had to be something in private. As Jesus leaned back toward Judas, he would have said, you've said, thou hast said. Otherwise, in our text in John, the Bible tells us that the disciples had no idea that Judas was the one who was the betrayer. They would, they would have known that Judas was the betrayer. They wouldn't have thought that Jesus said to him because he held the purse, go get the stuff that we need for the feast or, or, or buy something for the poor and give it to them. The disciples were pretty clueless that it was Judas at that point. And so what I'm saying is it kind of gives us an idea of the proximity of Judas to Jesus. He had to be close enough where this little conversation between them was in private. Now, go back to our text. I hope that didn't confuse anybody. I hope that it helps actually us understand what might actually be going on here. Judas had a prominent place here next to Jesus. And the fact that he dipped the sop and gave it to Judas shows us that he was showing that sign of special attention. But now I want you to look at verse 30. Because the Bible says, He then having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. And we made that connection with chapter 12 and verse 35, where Jesus says, Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. Understand this, friends, that the very presence of Jesus himself for three years in Judas's life did nothing to change Judas. Judas, like Pharaoh, had an unbending and unchanged heart. His heart was hard. It remained hard, even in the presence of Jesus. And so the Bible tells us that he ventures out into the cold, dark night of betrayal, far from the light that loved him, far from the light that offered him warmth and comfort, because his heart was hard. Now look at verse 27. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Although Satan entered into Judas, and although Satan empowered Judas to carry out this betrayal, Judas was actually responsible for himself for doing this. After Satan entered into Judas, Jesus simply ratifies the evil choice that Judas had made by saying, What thou doest, do thou quickly. And let me make this application, friend. The betrayal of Judas should give us a deeper understanding of the depth of human sin and the depth of the wickedness of the human heart. In spite of Jesus' love for him, the opportunity that he had that Jesus gave him, Judas' heart remained unchanged. There was one commentator who said this, he said, it is people who have the deepest understanding of sin and what it means, 
who have the greatest understanding and appreciation of the love and the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. A superficial view of sin leads to a superficial, superficial view of salvation and to a superficial view of everything else. This is why, friend, you have easy believism and you have churches full of people who are actually unregenerate. They've never been saved because salvation is treated as a fire escape or salvation is treated as something like you add God into your life when what needs to be preached is repentance toward God. Your sin offends God. You offend God because of your sin. Your very nature offends God. You need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And so you got people walking the aisles or you got 85 people saved on visitation today because there's a superficial view of sin and the holiness of God. It's the people who have the deepest understanding of sin and what it means who also have the greatest understanding and appreciation of the love and the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. I don't deserve any of that. And I'm so thankful to the Lord for what He's done for me. And I want us to learn a few lessons from Judas this morning to help us understand the depth of our sinful heart, but also to see the love of Jesus Christ for undeserving sinful people as we. First of all, Judas shows us the awful nature of sin. And before we start throwing rocks at Judas and saying, how could he do such a thing? We need to realize something. That apart from God's grace, apart from God's goodness, apart from God's mercy, we're all just like Judas was. We all have the same seeds of betrayal in us. We all have the same seeds of betraying Christ in our hearts before God graciously saves our soul. Think of what Judas had witnessed in his three years of close association with Jesus. He had heard Jesus' teaching both in public and in private. He had witnessed Jesus, most of Jesus' miracles, I'm sure, Judas saw. He had seen Jesus' grace towards people, the ungrateful, the unloving. He'd, saw, he'd seen how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. He'd never seen any hint of sin in Jesus at all, whether that was in public or in private. And yet Judas betrayed the one who was innocent. Later on, Judas regretted it. Later on, when his fate was sealed, Judas said, I betrayed innocent blood. for 30 lousy pieces of silver. There's one author who points out that Judas teaches us that sinners need more than a good example to be saved. Judas had the best example that he's ever had. Judas had the best example who ever lived, but he was still dead in trespasses and sins. And unless the Holy Spirit of God comes and imparts new life, sinners are not capable, we're not capable of reaching out to God. 
It's because He first loved us. It's because He imparted, uh, 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 gave us the gift of, of grace and the gift of faith. Listen, it's, it's all of God. It's all of Him because our heart is wretched. Our heart is awful. Our nature is. We don't have the power to reform our life. In fact, reforming our life is not going to do any good. We need a new life. We need a new nature. And that's why Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Judas shows us the awful nature of our sinful heart. In spite of all that he had access to, Judas still died lost. Judas also shows us that Jesus Christ gives religious hypocrites a solemn warning. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Judas is one of many warnings in the Bible that especially apply to religious people. Religious people are often blind to their real need of salvation. It's true. You know, kids grow up in a good church. They grow up in a Christian home. They're part of a Bible-believing Baptist church. They've heard lingo all their life. They know the verbiage of, of the faith. They know all the things to say. They know that they're supposed to be saved. Listen, they know all these things, but they also live a fairly sheltered life, which, praise the Lord, is a good thing. But a lot of times, this is true, where children who grow up in a Christian home don't feel or see how wretched and sinful their heart actually is. And a lot of times, you, uh, what develops is what we would call cultural Christianity. I'm a Christian because this is my culture. I'm a Christian because this is how I grew up. This is the rules I had to follow. This is what, we, this is what I am. It's my identity because this is how I grew up. And there's never a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And a lot of times, it is hard. It is hard for young kids and young children. Listen, if parents aren't diligent to teach the, the wretchedness of our sinful heart, it's hard for them to see how wicked they are. Because why? They look out there and they say, I'm not like that. Or I've never done what that is out there. But one little lie is just as wretched and just as sinful in God's eyes as somebody who's a murderer. Because God is holy and He's righteous. And parents, I'm telling you, and let me give you this instruction, let me help you. You need to teach your children in a loving way that their own heart is dirty and wretched and sinful, and they need a Savior just as much as that person out there does. It doesn't matter whether you've done this horrible sin or not. The Bible says we come forth from the womb speaking lies. And the Bible clearly says to tell a lie is breaking God's law. And you break one of God's laws, and it's if you broke them all. Judas shows us 
that Jesus gives religious hypocrites a solemn warning. Listen, we can know the religious jargon. We can quote Scripture. We can serve in different ministries. We can even have some Bible college classes. But like Judas, if you've never repented of your sin, you're just as lost as Judas. The Apostle Paul was a very religious person before he was converted and saved. He took great pride in his religious heritage. He was more zealous than all of his contemporaries in persecuting Christian people, which he considered to be apostate from the Jewish faith. But it was Jesus Christ who had to strike him down on the road to Damascus and bring to light his own uh, wicked heart and that all of his religious efforts and self-righteousness was nothing that would merit favor with God. Listen, I grew up in a good home. I grew up in a Bible-believing Baptist church. I was very familiar with religious matters. And maybe that's you, too. I would say this to you. This warning is also for you. If you've never been born again, you need the new birth just as much as Judas did. You need to repent of your self-righteousness. You need to come to God as a guilty sinner and receive His mercy and His offer of salvation. Don't hold on to some profession you made when you were a little kid. If you don't know for sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior and the Spirit of God dwells within you, friend, you better wake up and you better check it out. Because you're going to walk out of the light and into the darkness. Thirdly, Judas shows us that we should never walk away from the opportunity to receive love from Jesus Christ. Jesus loved Judas. He washed his feet. He offered Judas the opportunity to repent right up until the very end. But Judas walked away from the love of Jesus Christ. And later on, just like Esau, Judas could find no place of repentance, though he sought it with bitter tears. You know, Judas felt some remorse later on, but not repentance. He threw down that betrayal money in the temple. And the Bible says he went away and he hanged himself. And all I'm saying is this. If you're here today, the Spirit of God has spoken to you before. You know that you need to be saved. Jesus Christ is offering love. Don't reject that love. No matter how badly you may have sinned, the Lord Jesus Christ reaches out in grace and mercy and His blood can cleanse from all sin. Amen? There's nobody who sinned too great for the love of Christ. Judas ought to teach a lesson. It ought to teach the bitter end of those who walk away 
from Jesus Christ. If you need to be saved, come to Him. Come to Him and receive His merciful offer of grace. One last passage of Scripture and then we'll be done. I want you to look at Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. Look at verse 9. The Bible says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is deceitful above all things. And it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? No one fully grasps the depravity of the human heart except for God. The fallen, sinful human heart is first and foremost the most devious thing. It is deceitful. It is untrustworthy. It's the hatchery of lies. It's intrinsically dishonest. There is no human cure for the deceitfulness of the human heart. Only God understands how wicked we truly are and how deserving of judgment we actually are. You can't trust your heart. It's going to lie to you. But what you can trust is the promise of God, the promise of Jesus Christ. Judas was driven by a deceitful and wicked heart and that makes it even more amazing as to what Jesus did and how he loved him right to the very end. We'll talk about that the next time that we are here. We'll talk about the love that Jesus Christ demonstrates, not only to Judas, but also to his disciples and the instruction that he gives them. But for today, understand this. Betrayal, it comes from a wicked, deceitful heart. Your own heart will betray you. Don't be like Judas. If you need to be saved, come today. He's offering love. You respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I t pray that you'd take your word and use it today to draw sinners to repentance. Thank you for giving us your word and for the power that it has, that it is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of a person's heart. That it's not just a book, but it's alive. It's powerful. And Lord, I pray that you would use it to accomplish your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.